There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. encouraging you know in many places where I go people have the idea that they give God an hour in the day and then they check that box off and go do what they want to do I still believe Sunday is the Lord's day and uh, we ought to honor the Lord every day of course but surely if he gives us seven days I think we can give at least one day back to him and then from time to time we set aside special days like this revival meeting to really just concentrate on a few things and try to hit the spiritual reset button you know, you have Bible school for children. I guess you all have vacation Bible school here from time to time. Uh, some type of children's work. That's an emphasis for boys and girls. You send your kids off to summer camp, and that's an emphasis for teenagers. I think revival meetings like this are very similar to that for the whole church family. The idea is we're trying to, to put aside all the distractions and give God our undivided attention and say, all right, Lord, we're ready. Speak to us. And whatever you want to say to us, the answer is already what? Yes. And I hope you've already determined to say yes to the Lord this week. And I, I'm just re really encouraged by the way you received the word this morning and responded to it. Well, let's open the word of God, shall we? Where would you like to go tonight? You tell me. Where would you like to go? All right. Well, let's go to Matthew then. That's good. And what chapter would you like to go to? All right. Well, let's go to Matthew 21 then. And those who are joining us tonight are saying, what kind of preacher is this? Let's the congregation choose the text. But we are living in Matthew 21 this week, examining the, the Holy Week. The Holy Week, people refer to it as the most important week in the history of the world. Uh, Christ's final week on this earth, the reason for which he came. Look, he didn't come to live. He came to die. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So everything in the gospel records, everything in the life of Christ, everything in all the prophecies of the scripture is rushing towards the cross. In fact, when you come to Matthew chapter 21, verse number 1, it begins this way, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, there's a lot of prophecy that surrounds Jerusalem, but of course we understand that the most important thing that happened there was this was the place where our Lord Jesus Christ laid down himself as the final sacrifice for our sins. And so he drew nigh to Jerusalem, and we're drawing nigh to Jerusalem, and we're saying, all right, Lord, show us, teach us what you were there for, what you did. Let's review just for a moment. In the Bible study hour early this morning, we looked at the little colt in the opening verses. The Bible says, the Lord hath need of him. And the idea of humble submission and obedience to the command of Christ. And then you come to the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus. And I, I gave you a one-word sermon this morning. Let's see if you listen, if you really listen. I'm going to count to three and you shout the word out. All right? One, two, three. You did listen. That's good. Hosanna, which means save now. I wonder, have you prayed that for anyone today? Is there inside of you something that just wells up, Oh, Lord, help him now. Draw her now. Speak to them now. now. This is a prayer, and it's a prayer we can continue to pray. 
Now he's in the city of Jerusalem. And where would he go? Where in the city do you think he'd make a beeline for? Notice what the Bible says, Matthew 21, verse number 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God. Pause there just a minute. We'll go a little further. But notice, not just the temple. The Holy Spirit is very particular here. It is the temple of who? Of God. Now, the Jews, the Jews, they thought it was their temple. The religious elites of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, you know, they were the interpreters of the law. They thought it was their temple. The Lord said, no, no, it's not your temple. It doesn't belong to you. The, the people of Israel had this idea that maybe, maybe it just belonged to them. No, no, this is not your temple. This is the temple of God. On the other hand, Herod had made it his temple. Did you know that? Did you know that the temple of Jesus' day had a gigantic complex that had been enlarged by King Herod? You ought to read and study about Herod. He died with his body eaten up with disease and racked with pain. In such awful pain, he could barely put clothes on his body. Uh, they said he stunk so badly, his body was decaying. It was just eaten up from the inside out. And yet this man, so everlasting, full of himself, had enlarged the temple complex, not to the glory of God, not to the, not to the glory of Messiah who was coming, to his own glory. It was Herod's temple. As a matter of fact, it was just a few hundred yards outside of, outside of his window. He could look at his bedroom and see this beautiful temple complex that he had enlarged and people would come through from all over the world and they'd say, wow, what a temple Herod has made here. What a, what a place Herod has erected here. And look what Jesus said. Look at it carefully. It is not the temple of the Jews. It is not the temple of Israel. It is not the temple of the Pharisees. It is not the temple of the scribes. It is not the temple of Herod. Say it, church. It is the temple of God. It's very important. We're coming back to that in a moment. When he gets there, the Bible said that he cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were sore displeased, and they said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And I think the next phrase may be one of the saddest phrases in the whole of Scripture. Funny how we stop our reading at certain places. I'll remind you, chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. I'm glad we have them or we'd all still be looking for Matthew 21 right now. But the truth of the matter is you've got to read through the divisions to get the whole picture. Notice he's having this conversation. He's having this, this interaction. He's, he is seeing their reaction to his presentation as their Messiah. And they rejected him. They refused him. They, they would not believe in him. And so the Bible says, don't miss verse 17, and he left them. I can't think of anything any sadder than Jesus comes to town. And religious people miss him. Honestly. I can't think of anything more tragic than the Lord shows up to speak, to work, to do his work, to, to draw people to himself. And we miss what the Lord is seeking to do. And so watch please. The Lord passes on to other parts. The Lord passes on to other people. There's a, there's a tragic symbolism in this expression. And he left them. 
This was a pivotal point in the nation of Israel. I wish I had time to talk to you more about it. But this was the moment when he's presented as the king, and they would refuse him. And I hate to say this, but I think there's a lot of people sitting in churches who've been listening to Bible preaching all of their life and nodding their heads and giving mental assent to certain things, but they've never really made it their own, and they have, in essence, rejected what all God desired to do in their lives. And I want to plead with you. Look, I'm not preaching at you. I'm pleading with you tonight. Let's not miss the Lord this week. Let's not miss what Jesus desires to do in us. Well, what does he desire to do? Well, back up to the previous verses and notice what Christ's priority was when he comes into the temple. The very first thing he does when he comes into the temple is he cleanses the temple. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Because he's done it before. Matter of fact, let me just show you. Everybody hold your place right here in Matthew 21 and turn over to the gospel according to John for just a moment, to John chapter 2. This is at the beginning of our Lord's ministry, early on. This is the first cleansing of the temple. And look at John chapter 2 and verse number 13. The Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Look at John 2 verse 14. He found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And notice verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Psalm 69 verse 9. That's, that's where it was prophesied. That Messiah would come and he would be so eaten up with it. You ever use the expression, we say, he's eaten up with something. Usually when my mother said I was eating up with something, it wasn't a positive thing. But when the Bible says he was eaten up with something, literally he was consumed with something. What was he consumed with? He was consumed with a zeal for the glory of God. Remember, he came to represent the Heavenly Father. He wanted everybody to know who God was. And anything that stood in the way of that, he wanted to get out of the way. May I say to you tonight, some things never change. In John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 21, and by the way, Mark and Luke both recorded as well, at the end of his ministry, from start to finish, like bookends on the ministry of the Lord Jesus, what is he ever passionate about? This one thing. He is zealous that the Lord's house would be made clean so that God would get all the glory for it. With that in mind, I want you to go back with me to Matthew chapter number 21, and I want us to study this little story about when Jesus cleans house. When Jesus cleans house. Now somebody said, well, we, it's almost spring. We think it's almost spring. It keeps waffling between spring and winter, doesn't it? It's almost spring. Mama used to call spring the time to do spring what? Cleaning. Yeah. Did you ever do that at your house? Spring cleaning. You know, the one. That's when you move all the furniture and theoretically get in behind everything and all the cracks that you just ignore the rest of the year and take the screens out and wash them really good and do the inside and out of the windows and get all the mess off the house that should have been removed. It is spring cleaning time. Well, may I say to you, it is time for us to have some spiritual cleaning. And Jesus is the one who is the great cleaner. The psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the, in the way everlasting. May I tell you, there will never be revival and there will never be great glory to God and there will never be a great drawing of sinners to repentance until God's people get thoroughly right with Him. You know, I'm in revival meetings a lot. 
And typically, preachers, somebody will say to me now, Brother Paulie, we really need revival. I'm going to give you the translation of what they mean by that, all right? Brother Paulie, we want you to preach hard because we want everybody else to get right with God this week. As a general rule, when people start thinking about revival, they're thinking about somebody else getting right. They want to see him get saved or her get right or that family get back in church. Wait a minute. What's the old spiritual say? Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. May I say to you, revival does not begin with others. It must begin with us. Peter wrote that judgment must begin at the house of God. And I'm praying, even while I'm preaching right now, oh, Holy Ghost, begin something here in us this week. Begin something in my heart. Begin something in these families. Begin something in this church. Begin something in this place that will continue long after the preacher's voice is silent and the sermons have been forgotten and the meetings are concluded and we've all gone home. Start something, Spirit of God, that will continue until we meet at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus someday. And if it begins, I want to submit to you tonight, it will not begin with the lost people getting saved. I love to see lost people getting saved. In recent weeks, we've seen numbers of people in meetings come into faith in Christ, and I rejoice in that. And I don't think there's ever been a greater moment for us to give the gospel and witness than the hour we're living in right now when people are needing hope and looking for answers. But I want to tell you, the great spiritual awakening will not start with lost people. It must start with saved people getting thoroughly right with God. Could I remind you the Lord is coming to his own place and to his own people to do the cleansing. So let's open the door tonight. Come on, let's open the door and say, Lord, come on in here and inspect us and cleanse us. And if anything is in us that doesn't look like you, get that out of the way. Get all of our junk out of God's way. And Lord, bring in the beauty of holiness that you alone can bring. A couple of years ago, I was preaching in South Florida. I was preaching through the little, little book of Haggai. It's an amazing little book, two chapters long. And on, I think it was Monday night, a dear, precious Christian woman up in years came out in the lobby of the church, and she told me, she said, Preacher, she was very articulate. She said, Preacher, she said, I am praying that God will send us a real Holy Ghost revival. And I said, Amen, sister. Me too. Keep praying that way. She turned around to walk away. She took a couple steps. She stopped, whirled back around, came right back to me. She said, Could I ask you a question? I said, Sure. She said, What does that look like? I started to open my mouth to give an answer. You know preachers want to have the answer. And the Holy Spirit stopped me and said, you're not allowed to answer that question. You ever have God just give you pause? You're not allowed to answer that question. You don't know the answer yet. Now, wait a minute, I'm a preacher. I'm preaching a revival meeting. I'm preaching on the theme of revival. And all she asks is, well, if it comes, when it arrives, what does it look like? We're tempted to think of so many things. A house full of people. Energy and enthusiasm in the singing, dynamic preaching, lots of people coming forward. What does it look like? I said to her, let me think and pray on that a little bit. I was in my hotel late that night, getting ready to go to bed and got down to pray. and Wasn't even thinking about our conversation. And in the middle of my prayer, the Holy Spirit brought that question to my mind. Isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit brings things to your mind? What does that look like? And I said to the Lord, Lord, you're going to have to help me with this one because I don't know how to answer that woman's question because I'm not real sure myself. If revival does come to this church, if revival does show up in this town, how will we know when it comes? And I'm telling you as clear as day, not audibly, but in my heart, I know God gave me the answer to that question. The Holy Spirit said to me, it looks like Jesus. When real revival comes, it, it's not some chill up your spine or or some euphoric feeling, bells don't ring, lights don't flash, you don't feel funny all over. That's not revival. That, 
That may be emotion, but that's not revival. Watch, please. Why does the Holy Spirit work in us? That we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? That Christ be lifted up. Watch this, please. When the Holy Spirit has His right of way in our heart and life, one thing happens. The Lord gets out of us everything that doesn't look like Jesus, and He puts in us everything that does look like Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, when Jesus starts cleaning house, everything has to change. So what can we learn from this amazing story this particular hour on the first Palm Sunday. Let me give you some principles. Would you write them down? Number one, I want you to write down that there is a principle. First of all, there's a principle. God always begins His truth with principle. And what is the principle? Well, He goes to the temple. And what is the great principle in this? Would you write this down? That we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. He calls it the temple of God. Well, where is the temple of God? Somebody tell me, where is the temple of God? Do you got to travel to Jerusalem to go to the temple of God now? No. Some people mistakenly say, oh, that's the church house, preacher. That's the church house. And I've heard people preach this passage of Scripture and talk about not, not selling in the church house and all that kind of thing. And I'm not getting into that subject, but that is not what this passage is about. Look, please, the, the, the temple of the New Testament is not a building made with hands where we all come once a week to visit the presence of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of the Holy Ghost of God. Look, you've been redeemed. That means Christ bought and paid for your house. What do you think about that? May I say, he doesn't rent, he buys. When he bought, he paid in full, praise God, with his own precious blood. He doesn't move in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. He moves in to stay. And when he moves in, hold on to your seat because he starts the largest renovation project in the history of the world. And he starts getting out of your house all the junk that shouldn't be there. And sometimes it's painful. And he starts bringing in all the things he wants to furnish your house with. Oh, and I want to say right now, Lord Jesus, do that in me this week. You know what I'm praying? I'm praying when this meeting's done, I, not you, not you, I will be more like the Lord Jesus. When I leave, I, I want to be more the temple of the Holy Ghost that God wants me to be. May I ask you a question, sir, ma'am? Do you believe God has every right to do whatever he wants with his house? And I want to ask you a question. Why do we keep defiling his house? How many of you think that the Lord ought to feel at home in his own house? Finish this phrase. There's no place like, and that's true. I'm speaking as a traveler. Now, I appreciate the comfortable accommodations, and I'm grateful for every nice place where I get to stay, but I'm just going to tell you, there's no place like your own bed. There's no place like your own home. You know why? Because you can relax there. You can make yourself really at home there. It belongs to you, and you belong there. May I tell you, if Jesus Christ really lives inside of us, don't you think that the Lord, instead of being grieved by our sin or pushed to a corner of our life, don't you think the Lord ought to have freedom to roam through every room and have the mastery of every part of our life? Don't you think the Lord ought to be at home in His own temple? And so we begin with a principle, and the principle is that we are the temple of God. There's a second thing I want you to write down, and it is this. In this little story, you see not only a principle, but you see a great purging. There is a purging. Notice what the Bible says in verse 12. He went into the temple of God, and he cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. He goes in casting things out, getting things out. 
It's fascinating to me. By the way, when the Lord has his rightful place in us, he drives the things out of our life that shouldn't be there. You can't get rid of them in your own power. But when you let the Lord have his way, Jesus knows how to crowd those things out of our lives. He's the one who does the purging of our lives. And I have no idea what air it is in your life that needs purged. But I'm pretty certain almost every one of us in this room have some area of our life where we need God to do a real deep cleaning work. Maybe it's thoughts. Maybe it's emotions. Maybe it's words. Maybe it's motives. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's secret things. But something in your life, and here's what we do. We start making excuses for it. We say, well, it's not the worst thing. Wait a minute. That's not the measurement. Somebody say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That's not the measurement. Look, what is the thing you don't want to meet God with someday? When Jesus comes, what's the thing you don't want to have to give an answer for at the judgment seat of Christ? That's the thing you need to bring to God tonight and say, dear Lord, purge this thing out of my life. Now, what was it specifically in this story that the Lord was dealing with? Well, there are two or three things wrong with it. One thing wrong was there was a lot of deception going on there. For example, in one of the occasions, the Bible refers here to the den of thieves. They were, they were conducting business. They were selling animal sacrifices that need to be sold, but they were skimming off the top, and they were upcharging, and, and they were thieves. And somebody said, that's right, preacher, preach on those thieves. No, no, I think you just missed the point entirely because Jeremiah said that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Isn't it amazing how we can spot somebody else's sin and miss our own sin? And so first, we must deal with our own deceptive hearts, with the guile in us, with the secret things in us. Lord, speak to me. Lord, search me. Lord, cleanse me. I want it all out. Get the sin out of my life. Purge the dross so that the temple will bring God the glory that he is worthy of. But that's not all I see in this verse. Look at that verse in verse number 12. Because the Bible says here that they were in the temple. Matter of fact, you might want to Underline in verse 12, the temple of God in the temple. In verse 14, he came to him in the temple. In verse 15, children crying in the temple. Have you ever wondered, though, where they were in the temple? Now, this is really interesting. Read, read the history books a little bit, and here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that they had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. There was one court in the temple complex where the Gentiles were allowed to come and bring their sacrifice and worship God. It was the only place where the Gentiles were allowed to approach to the presence of the Holy God. Matter of fact, let me just show you something. Would you stay with me a second? How many of you give me 60 seconds? Would you raise your hand? Give me 60 seconds. Good. That's at least 10 minutes. Wonderful. All right. Run back in your Bible for just a minute to the book of Isaiah. Now, I'm going somewhere, so stay right with me. Look at Isaiah 56. Because this is the prophecy about the Father's house being a house of prayer. And there's, there's something I want you to see here. Please don't miss this. Look at Isaiah 56 and verse number 7. God says of his people, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. By the way, there's nothing more joyful than being in the presence of God. There's nothing more joyful than being in tune with the Lord in the place of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. And please look at the end of Isaiah 56 and verse number 7. He says, For mine house shall be called a house of prayer. Don't miss this phrase. For what? Mm. Does your Bible say all people? Hmm, mine does too. 
I always had this idea in my mind, well, the temple, that was for the Jews. The temple, that was for the children of Israel. The temple, no, no, you understand, look, that God chose them, not just for them, but God chose them so that through them, he could show himself to all nations. Do you understand that the God of the Bible has always loved all people? He didn't start doing that in the New Testament. That the heart of God is that he wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That God loves every man. Do you understand that from the beginning, God's grand plan was that all nations would come to know him? Now go back to our story and ponder just a moment where they had set up their marketplace. Not in the court where the Jews worshipped, in the court of the Gentiles. And do you know what they were doing? Watch this. They were blocking the way of others coming to know God. Let me tell you what's awful about our sin. It's not just awful what we do or what we get because of what we do. It's awful what is missed because of our sin. Now, I'm going to just pause a moment and tell you one of the most staggering things to me is to think that someday at the judgment seat of Christ, I'd have to give an account for why some area of my life had kept people from knowing Jesus. I'd hate to think that. This very week, this very week, a woman came to me and she said, I've started working in a certain business. And she said, I'm trying to witness for the Lord, speak to people about Christ. And she said, there's a girl there. She's lost, preacher. She said, she's lost. And, and she's on her way to hell. And she doesn't know God. And she said, I'm trying to talk to her about the Lord. She said, but there's another woman in the place of business that gives her the fits and gives her a time all the time. And she said, here's the awful thing. The woman giving her such fits and making life so miserable for her is an out-and-out Christian. And she said to me, she said, this one woman who is a church-going woman who says she loves God has, has been such a devil on the job and such a poor testimony for Jesus Christ that she's put a hindrance and a stumbling block into this young girl coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you hear me, church. We all are going to have a lot to give account for someday. Look, it's not just about you, and it's not just about me. There's a world of people out there, the whole nation, that needs to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And pray tell me, how will they ever come to know God if they do not see the glory of God in our lives? Why must there be purging? Because it's holding back the testimony of the gospel. Let me give you one more little thought. Look at the verse again back in Matthew chapter number 21. It was not only deceit and dishonesty going on. It was not only that they were blocking the way of the Gentiles. But notice please what is in the verse and what is not in the verse. In the verse you got them changing money and you've got them selling doves. Is that right? Changing money, selling doves. Let me ask you a question. Was there anything inherently wrong with changing money and selling doves. Wait just a minute. Was there anything inherently wrong with changing money and selling doves? We might read into this certain things. That's right, they shouldn't be money changers in the temple. Okay, let me tell you a little secret. They were using Roman money, and Roman money was not accepted at the temple. You had to change it to temple currency, which meant somewhere they had to change money. Watch this. They had to bring doves. So if you're going to get the doves, you've got to buy the doves. And if you're going to buy the doves, you've got to have the money. And if you're going to have the money, you've got to change the money to temple currency. So pray tell me, please, what's wrong with what they're doing? Notice what's not in the verse. There's not one word of prayer. There's not one word of worship. There's not one word of praise. There's not one word of humility. Watch this, please. They had reduced their religion to the form and the function and the mechanics of it, but they had missed the heart of it. I'm in hundreds of churches. 
hundreds of churches. And I'm going to tell you something that I am observing in churches. Lots of people are still singing the hymns, saying the prayers, giving their offerings, and nodding their head at the preacher, but something is missing. What has happened to us? I told you this morning about my, my grandfather who was a World War II vet and a coal miner. I had another grandpa. And my grandpa, Paul, he died when he was 57. He died before I was ever born. He started preaching when he was 13. And when he started preaching, they, they had to build a box for him to stand on so he could see over the lectern. He traveled all around starting churches. Matter of fact, I, I preached a revival meeting not, not too long ago in a church that he started. A man came out one night and he said to me, did you know your grandfather? And I said, no, sir, he died before I was born. And I said, did you know him? He started crying. He said, I didn't just know him, son. He said, he led me to Jesus. He said, you know the pond out behind this old country church? He said, your grandpa baptized me in that pond. And I remember, he said, you know those words you preachers say when you put people under the water? I said, yes, I know those words. He said, he must have been practicing because he held me under for a long time that day when he baptized me. Grandpa Paulie didn't have much when he died and left this world, left three pennies in his pocket. That's what he had. That was, that was the whole, what he owned, three pennies in his pocket. But my grandpa knew God. Walked with God. Had an old gospel tent. He'd set it up, preach. They'd have meetings, preacher, for six, eight, and ten weeks at a time. Hundreds of people saved. The church I grew up in as a little boy started out of one of those, one of those gospel crusades, one of those gospel meetings. And in his generation, they saw mighty moves of God and stirrings of the Lord. And I'm testifying now all these years later. I'm wondering, what is it that is holding back the blessing of God in our generation could it be our sin? Could it be why we're looking at everybody else and waiting on everybody else to get right with God? God is waiting on us. Would you write this down, please, somewhere in the margin of your notes? Here's what happened to these people. They had made the work of God transactional instead of transformational. They were still going to the temple. They, they were still changing money. They were still buying doves. They were still bringing sacrifices. They were still going through the motions of it all. But it was just transactional. That's all it was. It was just business as usual. It was transactional. There was no transformation in it. There, there was no change of heart and mind. There was no giving glory to God. Sounds a lot like what the Bible says that in the last days they'll have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And I want to say tonight, dear God in heaven, deliver us from a powerless form. What is it we need? Dear friends, we need to get thoroughly right with God. I want to challenge you. I dare you. Ask God to be thorough with you. Embrace yourself because when you ask Him, He will. He'll start turning things over and putting His finger on things and showing you things in your life that grieve the sweet Holy Spirit of God and hold back the blessing of heaven. There is a principle that we are the temple. There is a purging that only Christ can do. Number three, would you write this down? There is a process. I showed you earlier that it started early on in John chapter number 2. Now it's continuing three and a half years later. Would you please make a note of this somewhere? You don't just get something clean once. You've got to clean it over and over and over again. How many of you ever wash your car and then immediately the rainstorm comes? Yes? You clean your house and then the kids and grandkids come and mess it all up again. Isn't that right? You cleanse your body and then you go outside and start to sweat and get all dirty and Guess what you got to do? You got to cleanse it again. Let me ask you a question. If that's true in the externals, don't you think that's true in the internals? You know what we do? We need a fresh cleaning. We need a fresh cleansing. I, I must tell you that for me, I'm learning that the hard thing is not getting right with God. The hard thing is staying right with God. Anybody else have that same problem? 
You can be right with God just like that in a moment. But the process of staying right with God, listen to me. There is no progress without a process. You say you want to move forward with the Lord. You say you want to mature and grow. You say you want to go to the next step. You say you want this church to go to the next level for the Lord. Well, there's a process of God working in us, Philippians 2.13, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. What's He doing? He's making us, in the words of Hebrews, a partaker of His holiness. So, we'll look at it, please. There's a principle. There's a purging. There's a process. Number four, there's a purpose. What's the purpose? Now, the Lord's not interested in just getting stuff out of your life. He's interested in putting things into your life. Some people have this view of God like He's just trying to make life no fun and stop everything they enjoy doing. That's not it at all. God has much higher, greater things for you than that. Look, you can't live in a vacuum. You can't just get all the nasty stuff out of your heart and out of your home and say, all right, we're Christians now. No, no, that's not the way it works. You, you may not truly have a Christian home. You may just have a moral home. You may not really be a godly man. You may just be somebody that's gotten all the worldly things out of their life and the externals, but you've missed the whole point. What is God's great purpose? Well, walk through the passage and let me show you some things. Look at verse 12. The Bible says Jesus went in. Watch this. He's going to cast out, but first Jesus goes in. So first of all, the purpose is he wants your life to be the place of his presence. Oh, to live in the presence of God. I wonder, do you live every day in his presence? People say sometimes when they come to church, oh, preacher, I felt the presence of God. Well, I, I trust you do know the presence of God when you come to church. But I got a great word for you. You ready for this? God's presence doesn't just stay at the church house. It goes to your house. And it doesn't just work on Sunday. It works on Monday, praise God for that. And when you start getting all the junk out of God's way, let me tell you what's going to happen. The Lord is with you always. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. But you begin to acknowledge the presence of God and live consciously in His near presence. And there is nothing like it when the Lord Jesus moves in. It's not just His indwelling. It's His invasion. He, he didn't just come in. He comes in to take over everything. Come on down, would you please? Look at verse number 14. The Bible says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So watch this. It's not just the place of his presence. Now, it's the place of his power. Don't you love that? His power is there. God is at work. This past week, I saw a demonstration of the power of God. I've been working with a man who's been living in sin for years. He's been addicted to certain things and under the bondage and enslavement of sin. Tried everything he could to get free. Couldn't get free. And in the last few weeks, the Lord has radically changed the man's life. I stopped by his house the other day just to check on him. He said to me, he said, Scott, he said, I don't know what's happened. He said, but he said, I've been reading 30 or 40 chapters of the Bible every day. And he said, it's like God is just totally reprogramming my mind. And I'm going to tell you what that is, friends. That's the power of God. There's not a preacher or a church or on earth or a program on earth that can do for you what only God can do for you. When we finally come to the end of ourselves and say, Dear Lord, cleanse me and get all the junk out of your temple. And Lord Jesus, you come in and have your way with me. You'll be amazed at how God's power begins to move in your life. And keep reading. Look at verse number 15. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased. Watch this. It becomes the place of his praise. So the Lord is present. And then the Lord is demonstrating his power. And then the Lord begins to be praised. You want to have a good week this week? I'm going to tell you how to have a good week. You ready? Don't try to psych yourself up. Don't get out of bed every morning and look in the mirror and say, you're going to have a good day today. That's not going to get it done. Let me tell you how to have a good week this week. 
Before you get out of bed every morning, stretch yourself out on that bed, make that bed an altar. Before your feet ever hit the floor, begin your day with praise to God and give God glory and praise for His mercy and His faithfulness in your life. Watch, please. You will walk in the presence of God when you begin to praise Him all through the day. Old Lester Roloff said, sometimes you can praise your way through things you can't pray your way through. And maybe some of you right now are dealing with such burdens and battles and difficulties and you're trying to figure it out. Let me suggest to you that instead of just asking God to help you, you just start praising God. Sometimes praise is the greatest statement of faith there is. And your, your house, your temple becomes a place of praise. And then look at verse number 16. They said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have you never read? And then he begins to quote from the very word of God. Would you write this down? It becomes a place of his precepts. God begins to open the word to you, to teach you, to speak to you. One of the things that grows out of revival is people fall in love with the Bible all over again. It's wonderful. Matter of fact, let me just tell you, I don't care if you remember my name. I don't care if you remember my sermons. But when we're done, if people say, I'll tell you one thing, I just fell in love with that portion of Scripture and seeing God there, it will have been worth us having the meeting. Because when you start to get in the word and the word comes alive to you, it does God's continuing work in your life. It's when Jesus Cleans house. And then there's one more thing I want you to see in our text, and I'll be done. Notice, please, there's not only a principle here that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost and a, and a great purging here of every secret thing and a process that goes on and a purpose for it, but number five, would you write down, there's a prayer in it. We'll come back to this theme tomorrow evening, God helping us. But would you notice, please, what Jesus said the house is supposed to be? His Father's house is to be a house of what? I want to ask you a question. Is your house a house of prayer? I'm not talking about this church house. I know you pray here. I'm not talking about this church house. I'm not even talking about the physical structure where you live with your family. I hope you do pray together as your family. I'm talking about this temple. Look, please. Is this house a house of prayer? Is your life a life of prayer? Are you a man of prayer? Are you a woman of prayer? How would you like to be remembered? When it's all said and done, will anybody say, I'll tell you one thing, that man knew how to get a hold of God. That woman knew how to get prayers answered. Those people walked with God. Do you understand what Jesus was doing? He was bringing them back into fellowship and communion with the Lord. There's nothing like it. In fact, may I suggest to you that prayer brings you into the family room of heaven. That's what it does. Jesus takes you by the hand and leads you right in to the Father's throne room, which is the family room of heaven. And we have the joy and the privilege of communing with God Almighty. What a privilege is ours that we neglect that the Lord has made a way so that we can pray. By the way, the only perfect temple that ever walked the planet was the Lord Jesus. He came and tabernacled among us, literally. He was the tabernacle, the temple of God in human flesh walking around. He's the only one that was sinless and perfect and no junk ever got inside that temple. And what's one of the things we learned from the life of Christ? He was continuously in a state of prayer. May I say to you, I'm happy that you've prayed leading up this meeting. Lots of you have told me you've been praying for the meeting, praying for me, and I appreciate it. And I hope you'll pray in the midst of the meeting. And it was wonderful to see the altars filled with people this morning. But I'll tell you this, if the Lord really does his house cleaning, it is going to change every one of our prayer lives. And we are going to come to enjoy the Lord's presence more every day. And the greatest desire and longing of our hearts is going to be this, Dear Father, we just want to talk to you. And I wonder, is the Lord Jesus roaming through the corridors of your heart right now? What room is he standing going, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
F.B. Meyer is one of my favorite authors to read after. Do you know the name F.B. Meyer? Mightily used of God. Mightily used of God. Early in his ministry, F.B. Meyer was well known as quite a preacher. But he lacked some of the power of his latter years. Something was missing. He went to a meeting one night. If I remember the story correctly, that Deal Moody had 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 some part in, and a young man was there giving a testimony whose name was C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was quite a missionary. He was a young man. He'd been a famous cricket player in England, given all that up to go to the mission field, and God used him. He was a wild man. Let me tell you, he was out and out for God. He turned two or three continents upside down for the Lord, just moving through life, getting the gospel out. He married a girl named Priscilla, who was as radical for the Lord as he was. When they got married, Priscilla came down the aisle, they say, with a banner across her white wedding gown that said, United to do battle for Jesus. That's a woman right there, let me tell you. I mean, C.T. and Priscilla Studd, they really had something. C.T. Studd was just a young man in that meeting, and he gave a glowing testimony that night of God working in him, and there was such a moving of the Holy Spirit. When the meeting was done, a very stately F.B. Meyer came down the side aisle and shook the young man's hand and said to him, Young man! You have something that I don't have. I'm trying to figure out what it is. And C.T. Studd, without really knowing that much about F.B. Meyer, didn't mean to insult him at all, he said to him, Sir, have you surrendered everything to Jesus Christ? And F.B. Meyer would later testify and say, I was offended. I was a minister. I was an elder minister to him. And he said, I even answered him very curtly. Of course I have. And he said, but when I turned to walk out of the building that night, the Holy Spirit said, have you? F.B. Meyer said, I walked home alone by the riverbank that night. And he said, all along the way, the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave me alone. He said, I got to my house, and he said, I took, the, took my wad of keys out. I took that big, big ring of keys out and opened the front door. He said, I was just miserable. He said, nobody else was home, and I walked in and shut the door behind me with that ring of keys in my hand. And he said, standing there in the doorway of my house in the darkness with those keys in my hand, he said, it was just like the Lord showed up. And he said, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, Meyer, I want the keys to your life. And F.B. Meyer said, in my mind and heart, I thought, well, I've already done that. Sure, Lord, here they are. You got them all. And he said, I stood there and watched in my mind as Jesus counted every key. He said, then the Lord hung his head and sadly said, there's one missing. And F.B. Meyer said, I said, yes, Lord, but that's just to a little compartment in my life. That's just to a little, little room, a little area. There's really not much in there, and I've given you everything else. And he said, I watched as Jesus turned to walk away, and I said, Lord, don't leave me like this. And he said, I heard the Lord say to my heart, Meyer, if I am not Lord of all, I am not Lord at all. And F.B. Meyer said that night, standing in the shadows of my own house, he said, I took out the last lonely key of my life. And I said to the Lord, you can have it all. And he said, I placed that key in the nail-pierced hand of Jesus. And F.B. Meyer later testified and said, and my life was never the same after that day. May I say to you, the Lord wants every key. He wants access to every room. And he wants to cleanse everything. 
And when Jesus comes to house clean, I want you to know if you'll let him, he will do in you and with you and through you and for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. And my own heart is crying out now the words of the psalmist, after his awful sin, cleanse me, O God. Cleanse me, O God. Every part, every wicked thing, everything less than the glory of God, take every part, Lord, and make it clean. And then by the grace of God and for the glory of God, make your house a house of prayer. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.